So good morning to all of you once again. My name is Phil Nauer. I have the privilege of serving uh, as the pastor of Echo Community Church. And uh, so welcome to all of you that are here with us at Perry Hall High School this morning. Also welcome to all of you who are watching us live on Facebook. If you're watching us live, you can go ahead and like, uh, like the post. If there's something you hear that's good, you can share it. If there's something you hear that's controversial that would get a lot of people talking, you can share that too. That's fine. It's just your way of helping us spread what we're doing here with a few hundred and help us reach a few thousand people every single week. So we're back into this series. We're cl- closing this series today. We're not done, but we're going to move on to something else next week. Um, We're going to learn how to be grown-ups. That's a whole series on how to be a grown-up. Most of you thought you mastered this. Uh, Grown-ups are people who are capable of leading themselves. So we're going to take a whole series just called Lead, and we're going to look at what the Bible says about here are the ways you can take responsibility for the choices that you make and not depend upon somebody else for everything, but learn how to actually lead yourself. How about that? So we're going to talk about that. That might not be for you, but there's somebody you know that needs to hear this. You bring them. Okay, I'll help you out. They won't come to you for help all the time. We'll put them in the Bible. Okay, but we're going to start that next week. We're finishing our series called Multiply. Our church has a mission of being and making disciples. That's not some cutting edge new idea. It's a couple thousand years old. It's the mission that Jesus gave the original group of disciples. He said, go. He's like, I spent three and a half years with you. I've taught you. I've poured my life into you. You have watched me interact with all different kinds of people. I've taught you how to pray. I've taught you how to evangelize. I've taught you how to disciple. I've taught you how to teach people. I've taught you how to deal with all kinds of different confrontations and life situations. Now, go. Go to people who haven't had the same experience that you've had and tell them about the truth of the kingdom of God. Tell them about repentance. Tell them about the life that there is through me. And that was Jesus' initial strategy for how the gospel would spread all over the world, and it hasn't changed since. You and I are still part of God's church, and we are still responsible for seeing the kingdom of God multiply. I know that might not be the best decision. If you would have sat down and said, I'm going to come up with a strategy how to spread the gospel over the world, and I'm going to choose people just like me to do it, you might say, that's a crazy strategy. I I wouldn't qualify for that. However, God does not have a backup plan. We are the plan. We are part of the plan. Jesus has already done his part. He doesn't need to do another thing. He did the hard work. He did the heavy lifting. And now it's up to you and me to have a transformational experience with Christ. So much so that it turns our whole life right side up. And we are now passionate, enthusiastic about spreading the truth of the gospel around the world. And you and I might not go all over the world, but you probably have five, six, seven, eight people in your circle. And if we're living the way that we should, not all of those people know Jesus. We're intentionally investing in relationships with not only people who know Christ, but people who don't, who don't believe what we believe. And we've been getting into the nuts and the bolts of what it means to multiply. Specifically, we've been saying what it really looks like on a forensic level is you and I have to embody Jesus's value system. And be so, that is embodied so much in us that it flows out of us. It drives every decision that we make about the life that we live, which is so radically in tension with the world's value system. But yet, even though it's counter to the world's value system, when the world looks at it, if it's lived out the right way, it is very attractive and preferable. And embodying Jesus' value system will give you influence, It will attract people to your values and will always give you opportunity to explain to people the reason why you have that type of value system and hope living inside of you. So we've been driving down what are some of the values that Jesus had 
What does it look like for me to embody that? And how can that experience then lead me into opportunities to share the truth with people in my life who don't believe? We've looked at a few of those values. Today we're going to look at compassion. I want to share a verse with you that over 20 years of being a pastor and teaching thousands of sermons, I've never teached this specific verse by itself. I went into the Bible three weeks ago, was reading through the Gospels, knowing that I was going to be teaching about compassion. And this verse was sandwiched in between two other really powerful stories. You know, sometimes you can be so into a sandwich that you miss the little goody ingredient that's in there. When I first, you know, I love chicken sandwiches. Love them. And uh, not proud of the fact that in my life I've consumed many a fast food chicken sandwich. The fried variety. But then there was one experience that was unlike any other. There was something different about this chicken sandwich. When I moved to Georgia, there were Chick-fil-A's everywhere. And I had a, everybody said, have you had a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich? I'm thinking, what is so spectacular about the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich? Until I had one, and it had a great buttered roll. The chicken was perfectly cooked. But the differentiator to me was what was between those two delicious ingredients. It was the pickle. Okay, weeks at a time I will beg you to respond to a really solid theological point. I will beg you to amen. And people will come to me after search, Pastor, I'm just not an emotional person. I'm not someone who emotes out loud. I talk about Chick-fil-A pickles. Hands are going up. People are telling me to preach. Man, no golden calves around here, but golden Chick-fil-A sandwiches. Bring those out and people will get saved all over again. It's the pickles. All these years, the chicken sandwich was great, but then you realize there's this little ingredient that was in there the whole time in this sandwich. So once I noticed, it changed my whole life, right? I even order extra pickles now. Now, here's the thing. Don't get too hungry for a Chick-fil-A sandwich today. (laughs) It is Sunday. (laughs) This story to me became like those pickles. I have gone through these two chapters a lot in my life. And on the one side of the story, you have this really powerful story that's been used a lot. It's about two-thirds of the way through Jesus' mentoring relationship with the disciples. They're at the point in their internship with Jesus that he says, Okay, I'm now going to send you out to work. We're going to leave the workshop, and I'm going to send you out in pairs. Here's what I want you to do. Don't take any extra luggage. Don't take any extra clothes. Don't put any money in your wallet. But go out and teach people like I've taught you. And go out and drive out evil spirits from people that are afflicted with evil spirits. And go and lay hands on people that are sick and see them be healed. Just like I taught you. And when you go into a city... Find a house to stay at until it's not time to stay there anymore and then move on. Not really great, inspiring instructions. Doesn't seem really logical. But you know what the Bible says? It says they went out and they did it and it was working. They were teaching repentance. They were laying hands on the sick and the sick were being healed. They were driving out evil spirits. Now we know that not, they didn't meet with 100% success. There's a lot of success going on. So that happens right before this verse. Right after this verse, 
in the next few verses, even the same, the same day after this verse, you have this other really famous story about Jesus feeding the 5,000 people. And I've heard many a sermon. Have you ever heard any teaching on that story? Even if you didn't come to church, you've probably heard about that one. Pretty great. You know, some people are like, he was a David Copperfield. He could, you know, all these kinds of things. But in between it, there's this little story that often gets missed. Now, I've taught the story, but not this verse. In between the disciples going out and the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples come back from their working internship and they come back to Jesus. And the Gospel of Mark records that they were really excited to come back to the master and tell him about everything that happened. Wouldn't you be? If you had worked this internship, you were learning how to do your rounds at the hospital. You were learning how to, to do some talk therapy or you were learning how to work on a car. And the person who was training you said, I think you're ready to go out and tackle one on your own. And you're really nervous and apprehensive. And you go and you tackle it. You do one day of rounds on your own. And it is going swimmingly. You're knocking it out of the park. You're coming alive. Your heart's, you're like, this is what I was made to do. And I'm not going to be a complete failure. You're trying to troubleshoot the thing on the car. And you think that it's this pipe over here or this hose over here and you take it out and you put another one in just the way it's supposed to go and you turn the key and it works and it's working great who's the first person you want to go celebrate with man your mentor the person who taught you so the beginning right before the story they all come back and they're like they're having a reunion you know the class reunion they're getting back together and they're oh man i need to tell you about what happened over in this village we had this healing service and people left and right were getting healed and this person couldn't walk was walking and this demonic person came in and i put the whammo on them and the demons left and it was great another one's like well yeah you should have heard me teach man it was just filling you remember that lesson jesus taught a few weeks ago i remembered all of it even the illustrations it was great i didn't even have notes we don't even have paper to write things down it was great and they're comparing notes and they're talking. But remember, these guys are probably running on adrenaline because they didn't pack any extra food. They didn't take any money with them. They're living off of whatever people would give them. And as they're all getting together, these little disciples had little disciples. Because followers of Jesus, what a disciple is, it's a follower with followers. That's what we're supposed to be. We're following Jesus. And as we're following Jesus, we're becoming like Jesus. Why do we follow Jesus? It's just so attractive to be around Jesus. He changes us. It's so appealing. It's so much better than anything else. Just like Case Keenan, the quarterback of the Vikings, said a few weeks ago, the Minneapolis miracle. How many of you saw the end of that game replayed? I mean, it looked like all hope was lost. Case Keenan throws the ball up. You know, Stephon Diggs catches the pass, supposed to be leveled by the cornerback who, or the safety who misses him completely. He stops. He turns around expecting to get hit by the linebacker. He turns around. There's nothing but green field in front of him. Scores a winning touchdown. The Vikings win the playoff series. Get crushed by the Eagles the next week, which is the best part of the story. But they win the playoff game. And after, they put a microphone in Case Keenum's face right after the game. Did any of you see this? They put a microphone in the quarterback's face. And he has just, I mean, they could make a Disney movie out of what happened in his life. He, is the, he was not supposed to be the starter. He was not supposed to have this story. His name is Case Keenum, for crying out loud. He's a little bearded white guy. He's, you know, he's running around out on the field. Looks like the most unassuming guy ever to be part of one of the greatest plays in NFL history. And he's living out every football player's dream. They shove a microphone in his face after the game. He's overcome with emotion. He's breathing deeply, just looking around wide-eyed, trying to take it all in. They say, this must have been the greatest moment in your life. And he goes, just like this, with no preparation, goes, I'd put it third. Behind finding Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and marrying my wife. Now, 
I want you to understand this man has had an experience with Jesus that the very top the world could offer him, even in the moment he's experiencing it. He's on the field, confetti's coming down, people are chanting his name. He has just, how are you going to top that in your life? And he says, this is great, but it's third. The disciples had that kind of experience with Jesus. And now they're being sent out and other people are being attracted to these disciples. And when, when the disciples come back to Jesus, they're telling him the stories. You know what's happening? Some of the followers' followers were following. In other words, these disciples had a following now of people. Maybe not to the scale that Jesus did, but these people were following the disciples back. They wanted more teaching. They wanted more ministry. They wanted to hear more. And Jesus looks around and sees that the disciples, as they're starting to talk with each other, noticing, man, oh, boy, work isn't over yet. That's the life of a minister. It's the life of a disciple. The work's never done. You're living the right way. You're always, people are always looking into your life and they're being drawn to something. But Jesus also recognized that can be really draining. And the disciples look around and they start ministering to people. And Jesus, the writer says, noticed that his disciples were still ministering, but at the same time they were hungry because they hadn't eaten. And he demonstrates a principle that I have taught from this passage before. He says, the Bible says he noticed that his disciples were getting very tired while they were doing ministry. And he says to them, come apart with me to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they load up into the boat. They stop doing ministry. All their little followers are there watching them. They get in the boat and they peace out. And across the lake they go. And then our story picks up. It says that some of the people figured out where they were going. They knew where they were going on vacation. They had the cell phone number, right? And they ran on foot the long way. And told every village along the way, hey, come with us. There's a man down here you need to meet. He'll tell you things. He'll tell you who you are, where you came from, where you're going. You've never heard anybody like him. And when they get off to the other side, they had just about, they were just got ready to use their PTO. And up over the hill comes a crowd. And then here's our verse for today. Okay. Mark 6, 34. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. And here's the part that I never saw before because I didn't expect to see this word here. And he had, what's that next word? He has compassion on them because they were inexplicably poor and homeless. Is that what it says? He has compassion on them because he saw all of their physical and mental and emotional disabilities. No. He had compassion on them because they were hungry. They were on the reduced rate lunch plan. No. He says he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he stopped right then and there. And he opened up a donation center. And started clothing them. Feeding them soup. Is that what it says? He steps out of the boat. He has compassion on them because he saw the people were like sheep without a shepherd. So what did he do to show compassion? He began teaching them many things. In the few minutes I have this morning, I do not want to change what you and I would probably agree on is the definition for the kind of compassion a Christian ought to have. I don't want to change it. 
I do feel like we need to enlarge it this morning. Because both Old Testament and New Testament scripture teaches followers of God, the righteous in the Old Testament, compared to the wicked. In the New Testament, the Christian as opposed to the unsaved. A common thread between all of them is that Christians, followers of God, righteous men and women, if you're in Christ, if you're a follower of God, you are concerned with the spiritual needs of the world. You are also concerned and active in the material, the physical, the financial, the relational, the emotional needs of people. And the definition, one of the ones, I came across many definitions. This one just seemed to me like had the most teeth. I'll share it with you. It's your, it's your big idea. I think most of us could agree with this definition of compassion. I'm going to give this one to you. There's others, but I think this one, this one really hits all the bases very efficiently. Compassion is a deep awareness of the suffering of another combined with a desire to relieve it. It's different from sympathy. It's different from empathy. It's different from pity or sorrow. Although there's elements of some of those that just bleed together. Compassion is two things. It's a deep awareness of someone else's suffering, but it's combined with a desire to relieve it. Well, what keeps us from experiencing compassion towards others using this definition probably one of two things number one you don't look at that person and see their suffering you don't see it this is why uh, major nonprofit organizations spend lots of money on trying to capture really good stories of the suffering they're appealing to you to help we've seen you know, whether it's suffering, suffering animals and they get Sarah McLaughlin, you know, saying, I will remember you or the arms of the angel or whatever. And they put sad looking animals on the screen. And why? They want you and I to see these animals suffering and do what? Have a desire to take action to relieve. And not just be like, oh, that's such a sad commercial. Let me turn it off because I feel uncomfortable or it's boring. They want you to act on it. Other ministries that, you know, uh, nonprofit organizations that help with the poor and the undernourished or with sex trafficking, what are they trying to do? They're trying to capture the stories of the people who they're trying to help and they're trying to get it in front of our eyes and ears as best they can because they're hoping that that will help develop compassion, that you will see the suffering of another and not just see it and do nothing. Seeing it and doing nothing is like pity. No, that's too bad. That's really a shame. Let me move on. But that you'll see it and take the next step. You have a desire to relieve, to, to relieve their suffering. So sometimes we don't have, have compassion active in our life because we don't see the need. Because it's one thing when you are running across someone who has an obvious need. But what about the people who don't appear to have any material needs? What about the wealthy or the well-off or even the middle class? What about the person who has all the shiny jewelry, but behind it there's just dimness and emptiness that you don't see? What about the person who is well-fed, but spiritually starving? What about the person who's very educated, but illiterate in the matters of truth and scripture and Jesus and salvation and hope? What about the person who has what appears to be a happy marriage and a happy family, but behind all of it there's just a glaring emptiness. They don't even like who they are when they look in the mirror. Some people are good at disguising their suffering. We don't see it and there's no compassion. But then there's the other group of people. The people who we see their suffering and we have absolutely no desire to relieve it. 
The people who we feel like they're not victims of circumstances, they're victims of their own choices. They're victims of their own consequences. And we look at those people, we say, I see that you're suffering and I don't want to relieve it. I want it to continue because you deserve it. That'll teach you. And my question is, is that how Christ looks at that group of people? If we have time this morning, we'll address that. There is such a thing as compassion bias, which means that if you and I were really painfully honest with ourselves and the Holy Spirit, we would see that there are certain categories or groupings of people we have an easier time having compassion for than others. Or compassion fatigue, which I realize is usually assigned to people in the you know, uh, healthcare or mental health care industry. Compassion fatigue is when you say, I see suffering and I should want to have a desire to relieve it, but I am burnt out. I have no compassion left to give. I wish that I wanted to relieve their suffering, but I don't even have the energy, the wherewithal to take action. So the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament says that compassion is absolutely inseparable from a God follower. In your notes, value number five, what are we talking about today? A disciple embodies the compassion of Jesus. How? By boldly and generously responding to suffering by saying, I will help you. You understand there is a difference between stopping next to somebody and putting a dollar in a cup and moving on or stopping next to somebody and getting down on your knee and looking in their eye and say, tell me your story. I'm going to help you. One of them costs much more than the other, doesn't it? Have I made you uncomfortable yet? Good. A disciple embodies the compassion of Jesus by boldly and generously responding to suffering by saying, not go your way, be warm and well fed, and then walk away and have no deeds to accompany. It's with words and action. It says, I will help you. In fact, one of the world's most leading scholars on the Old Testament person who spent decades studying the Old Testament, really narrowed down his description of saying, in the Old Testament, there's two major groupings of people centered on two words, righteous and wicked. He says, when you look at the Old Testament, that's how people were generally categorized. Because you had people who weren't Jews who converted to being God followers and people who were Jews who didn't follow God at all. And so even more so than saying Jews and everybody else, he's like, what it really boils down to is righteous and wicked. In the New Testament, you see Christian and un you see saved and unsaved. Righteous and wicked. And he went even farther. He said, as best as I can tell, after studying for years and decades and decades and decades, here's what a how a righteous person was defined in the Old Testament. A righteous person was a person who understood that their wealth belonged not just to them, but also to their entire community. And wicked were those who felt like all of their wealth belonged to themselves only. Studied every single verse in the Old Testament and tried to draw parallels. And he says, a righteous person in God's eyes in the Old Testament who said, I recognize God has given me everything that I have, not just for me to enjoy, but for me to find ways that I can take that and I can sow it back into the lives of the people around me in such a way that they can be active participants in their own rehabilitation. And the Old Testament says, if you help the poor, it's like you're lending to God. And if you kept all your wealth to yourself, it was, like, it was an offense to God. In the New Testament, you have a same principle reinforced. 
First John chapter 3, verses 16 to 17 say this. If you are a Christian and you encounter people with material, possess, material needs and you have something material and you see somebody in their need and all you say to them is go your way, keep warm and stay well fed, but you do nothing, it calls you a fraud. So without going any deeper into this, I would present to you that there is a biblical mandate if we're a follower of Christ to embody the, embody the compassion of Christ, which says, I'm not only worried about your spiritual well-being, I am also concerned about your material and your relational and your emotional well-being. But we get these things out of balance. So I feel like I also have to say, we are not only concerned about people's relational needs and emotional needs and material needs. At the end of the day, what's most important for all of us is our spiritual needs. So it has to be a balance of words and action. And every major disagreement I've gotten into over evangelistic activities in my lifetime with church people has been you've got the one crew who says, listen, it's okay to hand out book bags, but let's not give them out unless we make people come to church and hear the gospel first and then we'll give them book bags. Then we have other people who say, let's not put that much pressure on people right away. Let's just give out book bags to the people who need them and hopefully the gospel takes care of itself. You need both those people in the room because we keep each other in balance. We're concerned about all of those things. But compassion says, if I see your suffering, I have a deep desire as a Christian because I have Christ living in me. I cannot see your suffering without dealing with a deep, costly, uncomfortable desire to want to relieve your suffering. And I know that sometimes, and, I, and I, I'm using an illustration of a homeless person, but it extends with me. Sometimes it's easier for me to just give you something little to take the guilt off of me, even though I know it's not going to relieve your suffering. That's a little easier for me. It's better than doing nothing than to get down on my knees and write a blank check to say, I will help you. But don't you want to be the kind of person who is willing to drop your knee and recklessly get involved with people's lives to the point where it inconveniences you and costs you to be able to look into their eyes in the name of Jesus and say, I don't even know your whole story, but I see your suffering. I want to relieve it. I will help you. What would change in this community and in your neighborhoods if that part of Jesus took over the lives of a body of believers? Haven't you ever dreamed about being that type of person who could overcome your own fear, your own hesitations, your own skepticism? To be able to recklessly, illogically respond to the tug of Jesus' compassion and look in the eyes of people. You see their suffering and you say, I will help you. The same way that Jesus, when he saw the woman caught in adultery, stooped down and got his finger dirty and looked in her eyes and said, I will help you, but did it in a way that was corrective, did it in a way that got her involved in her rehabilitation. This isn't in my notes, so I'm sorry if this doesn't come out in the right order. It was corrective. It got her involved in her rehabilitation. It was Christ-centered above all else but it really helped her. He said, I don't condemn you. Where are your accusers? He's dealing with her shame. Look around. There's nobody left accusing you. Don't listen to the enemy anymore. Where are your accusers? He's not standing up above her, looking down at her on the ground, saying, oh, I pity you. You're beneath me. 
I would never stoop to such a level. Here's a man who was fully capable of falling in the same thing that she did, but he didn't. And he kneels down. He stoops down. Because you see, compassion gets down this way. Pity stands up here and says, oh, tisk tisk. You'll always be a victim. I feel so bad for you. Let me, the big savior, come and lift you up to my level or else I'll just be perpetually disappointed. It keeps victims in their victim mindset. Jesus gets down. He says, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. And then what does he say? Go your way, sin no more. Compassionate response? Yes. But teaching was included in that, wasn't it? He didn't just say, here's a clean bill of health. We're going to expunge your record. Charges dismissed. That all happened. There was grace there. There's also teaching saying you need to be an active participant in your own rehabilitation. The way you're going to get out of this cycle of sexual sin is not by me just saying to you, you know what? I pulled a few strings and got the charges dismissed. What he's saying is, I don't want to see you back here, and you don't want to be back here again. And here's the solution. Go your way and sin no more. You see, you can teach truth and also be compassionate. They are not mutually exclusive. Compassion is not simply going around and giving people a free pass and saying how sorry we feel for you. Compassion says, here is teaching you might be missing that will not just help you today, but will get you out of this cycle into a place of health and stability where you can look in the mirror and be okay with who you are. That was part of the Old Testament. What did he say to the wealthy in the Old Testament? He said, the field belongs to you, God says. All of this is yours as far as the eye can see. You can harvest, you can eat, you can sell it, you can be wealthy. However, I need you to leave part of it alone, God said to the landowners. He said, it all belongs to you, that's enough, that's your budget. But you may not harvest the whole way to the corners. No, 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 that's not yours. Don't be greedy. Don't get every last dollar that you could out of this. Leave room. For who? For the poor. Well, who were the poor? They were the immigrants. They were the unwillingly unemployed. The Bible uses a lot of different words to describe them. They were the disabled. And what does he say? God says, I'm leaving for the poor that they may come and they may harvest themselves and they may eat and not starve. And what's the principle there? The principle is that the wealthy landowners, if they were righteous, understood that doesn't all belong to me. That's God's. And part of this belongs to my community. But it also says, but God also didn't say to them, go harvest it for them and deliver it to them so they don't have to do any work. What he said was this. Leave space and margin in your life for people who don't have what you have. And he says to the people who don't have what they have, don't look at yourself as less. Because the margins are enough for you. Don't look down at yourself and say, because I'm not a landowner, I must be a second category person. God doesn't give everybody the same. Our budgets are not all the same. Our talents are not all the same. Our paychecks are not all the same. But God says to those who don't have common work, and there is here for you, and you can be an active participant in your own rehabilitation. Interesting concepts that the Bible gives. How did Jesus embody the, huge, the, the compassion? He saw the huge crowd. He saw them. And what we don't see there, we don't see that this huge crowd that was waiting for Jesus and the disciples when they got off the boat, we don't see 
whether they were rich or they were poor. We don't see whether they were hungry or homeless. We don't see whether they were educated or uneducated. Now, you can do the research and kind of understand the grouping of people there. These were professional working people for the most part. They were agricultural people. They were tradesmen. They were skilled laborers. They were not the upper class. They were mostly lower class, middle class, but they could eat. They had homes, vocation, income, but none of that is here. And most of what we hear as Christians is about having compassion on people that we see as the poor, the underserved, the struggling, the suffering because of their circumstances. But here's a group of people says, I'm looking at them and I have compassion for them. I see their suffering and I want to relieve it. And what did he see? He says they're like a sheep without a shepherd. What does that mean? Well, sheep, not the most intelligent of wildlife. In fact, the analogy most commonly used in the New Testament to describe us is what? Sheep. Sheep are not the most intelligent of animals. Sheep are not, uh, they're not ferocious. Right? Well, some of you might have been around some ferocious sheep. Please don't send me YouTube links later of, I'm not on social media this month, so I won't see it anyway. But look, if a sheep gets attacked by another animal, it can't defend itself. Sheep can't go out and kill its dinner, right? It depends on somebody else to keep it safe. Another unique thing about sheep, probably what Jesus was thinking, sheep, because he created them, part of the process. Sheep are one of the very few animals that are created without a homing mechanism. Other animals have a homing mechanism. They can get lost or they can go out and run around in the yard and they'll come back usually, right? We had a pet when we lived in Georgia. One of our cats got out and ran away and it was three, four weeks. I thought that cat will never come home. A few weeks later, cat was knocking on the front door, just came inside, went right to the food dish like he had never left. Like, seriously? Like, what, what was all that? I was like, about to, you know, figure we had extra money in the budget. Now we didn't have to buy cat litter and stuff. And he just comes right in, just like, hey, guys, how, you, how, how have you been for the last month? So, you know, yeah, crazy. We don't have cats anymore. Um, sheep can't do that. A sheep can get disoriented by a few feet and never find its way back. Sheep need to be led, and without leadership, they will die. Here's what Jesus sees. He sees all these people who are so hungry to be led. They are missing certain elements of life and truth. They don't know exactly who they are. They don't know exactly where they came from. They don't know where they're going. Their existence at that point didn't hold a whole lot of hope out. They were not the top members of society. They were just trying to be good men, good women, good parents, good grandparents, good kids. They were trying. And what they saw in Jesus and the disciples, they saw something attractive. They saw 13 people who had a purpose. They saw 13 people who didn't carry all of the trappings of wealth, but yet managed to eat every day. Managed to be able to be rested. They saw people who seemed to have purpose and power and passion. 
And they dropped whatever they were doing by the thousands and they ran on foot without even packing a lunch or bringing a folding chair and they were ready to hang on their every word. And Jesus says, I have compassion on the people who on the surface don't look needy, but in their spirits they are bankrupt, so I will teach them. Who are the people you pass every day that on the surface don't look like there's anything wrong, but deep behind the surface are spiritually bankrupt and they need a shepherd? And that to me is one of the most egregious gaps in my own life in terms of compassion. Because I simply don't even see their need. Because I'm looking at compassion through such a narrow lens. And I want to enlarge that for you today. And I also want to warn you, that kind of compassion, I'm out of time, I can't finish the message, but I mean, that type of compassion is incredibly costly. It's incredibly costly. I have two sets of friends in my life, and the last time that I shared about a friend I was trying to lead to Jesus, I named them because I figured, well, they're, they're not in any danger of showing up to church here. And I found out later on that they were actually listening to our messages online, and they heard the message. And at one point I had said, you know, I'm just praying for this one. And I named her name, you know, uh, I named her name. I was like, I'm just praying for their soul. And that individual heard it, called a friend of theirs that was attending our church and said, what does he mean that he's going after our souls? Like, what is, and I'm like, that was, I'm thinking like, man, to someone who doesn't know Jesus, that is spooky. So I want to be really careful. But, you know, there's times that I really wrestle with a sense of embarrassment. Like I've been here for five years and every week I, I try and inspire you. Listen. Invite your friends, tell them about Christ, live out your faith, open up opportunities, build in relationships. And here I've been trying for over five years and I have been rejected 100% of the time since I've lived here. But I will, I will tell you, two of the, one is a married couple, the other one, well, they're both married couples. People that are in my life right now that don't know Christ, that I know outside of the context of this church, That on the, materially, there's no lack there. They're fine in terms of their finances, their possessions. They don't appear on the surface to be people that have major issues of struggle or deficit. But I've been asking God, help me see past that to see the sufferer, the struggle. Because I believe that everybody who has sinned deals with those things. We are alienated from God because of sin. We're alienated from ourselves because of sin. In other words, we know that we're broken on some level. And we're unhappy with the part of us that we see as broken. We're alienated from liking ourselves. We're alienated from each other. Just like Adam and Eve. When as soon as they realized they were sinful, they had to create things to hide the parts of them they were embarrassed about. And I see that in everybody that doesn't know Christ. And sadly, I see it in some people who have tried to put on Christ. That we still live feeling like we're alienated from God. We can't be pleased with ourselves because we see our brokenness. But we've got to throw everybody else off the trail and hide behind our house and our success and our position and our money and our relationships. We've got to cover up the areas of our life that we're not pleased with. Because if people saw that, we'd be embarrassed. And Jesus says that's too much work. How about freedom? How about being sinners saved by grace? There's one particular friend that I have. I met him uh, and his family. Uh, because I decided to coach T-ball. That's how desperate they were in this area for T-ball coaches last year. They let yours truly do it because I could pass a background check and I said yes. I didn't realize what I was getting into coaching T-ball. Um, but I just, 
I'm not trying to be over-spiritual. This is what I just said. God, there's obviously a reason. You have me here. Show me how I can represent you well to the parents. And I mean, look, on my T-ball team, I had two sets of parents. One was two ladies married to each other with their son in T-ball. Another one was two men living together with their son in T-ball. So, I mean, they weren't all like, they weren't all people who just looked like me, believed like I did. I'm right. I'm right in it. And I did not start off the first T-ball meeting by handing out New Testaments to everybody. Uh, you know, and I didn't go there. I just said, God, I need some compassion. That's my deficit. Because I know if you'll show me their area of suffering, I know because you're in me, you will create in me an uncomfortable, reckless, illogical desire that no matter how hard I try, I'll never be able to walk away from that will say, I need to help them. I need to relieve that suffering. And this is what I mean. I need to warn you about going down this trail of compassion. Because once you really invite Jesus, his compassion to take you over, it will arrest and reorder your entire life. I will, it will mess with the way you spend money. It will mess with innocent purchases. It will never, you will never feel like you can do enough. It will interrupt the middle of your day. It will tell you to do illogical things at illogical times. With people you know and complete strangers. It will keep you awake at night. Because one, you can't unsee suffering. You can't. I've tried. You can't. Guy on our team. One of the other parents. I mean, and I tried throughout the course of the season to be a, you know, just a good dad and a good coach. Good friend, good leader. At the end of the season, I was like, you know, none of these folks ended up coming to church. Nobody came to me and said, you know what, there's something different about you. What is that? I wanted to be like, what's well, the number two guard that I use every day and it gives me a good sheen? Um, none of those things happened. I got to be honest with you, I felt like a little bit of a failure. But that wasn't the biggest thing that ate away with me. I can deal with low self esteem, I can overcome that in Christ. Here's what I wasn't prepared for. I was not prepared for how deeply burdened I was for the spiritual well-being of the parents and the kids on my team. I don't want to assume that none of them know Christ, but the possibility, because I'm getting to know these people, I'm starting to relate to all of them. We all had kids exactly the same age. They all wanted the best for their kids. They all wanted to give those kids better than what they had growing up. They all wanted them to be safe. They all wanted them to be encouraged. They all wanted them to have fun. They all wanted their kids to be happy. And I'm starting to relate to this. See, compassion's easy when you have empathy. And I wish I could touch on this today. I can't. I really need to. Compassion's difficult when you don't have empathy. But it's still necessary. It just might look different. I can't open that up that can of worms. I'm ready to. I just can't. But maybe I'll try next week. We'll see. Season ended. I mean, the family that was coaching along with me that does attend this church at least came back. So that was good. So Little League registration rolls around this year in December. And we got the email. And, you know, I signed up, registered my five-year-old right away. They asked if, you know, hey, would you be willing to coach again? I was like, you must be low on volunteers. So sure, you know, we're the next level up. So we're not teased now. Now we're throwing baseballs at kids and hoping that they hit it, you know, they one of the dads emails me right thereafter. Hey, Coach Phil. He doesn't know me as Pastor Phil. He knows me as Coach Phil. He says, uh, 
hey, uh, my daughter and I had such a great experience with the team last year. Uh, we wanted to know if we could, you know, register for your team again. I said, sure. He said, uh, could I be your assistant coach? I said, absolutely. You can be the coach. I'll be your assistant. You want to deal with the parents? That's fine, you know. Um, then he says this. He's like, and did I remember you saying your church has a softball team? I said, yeah, we have a softball team. He's like, um, are people who don't go to church allowed to play? I'm thinking, well, you know, historically in church, <laughs> that's interesting. The softball field is an interesting display of people's character. <laughs> on the one side, I'm like, okay, there's no rule that says you can't. On the other side, I'm thinking of people from our church who are on the softball team and who would represent Jesus. And I'm like, hmm, you know, <laughs> I said, absolutely. He's like, I would just really love to build some relationship. I'm kind of lonely. Don't have a lot. It's like my life is my kids and my job. And I like to build some relationships. And I'm like, like you can feel the door coming open. And at the same time, the burden in my heart gets worse. Because here's a problem. Now I know him more than just a human being who drives a nice car to practice. He's a friend of mine that I deeply care about that I don't know where he is with Jesus. And the more I get to know him, the more I get to love him, and the more I get to like him, and I don't pity him, but I want him to know Jesus. I want him to know that no matter how hard he tries to be a good dad, he'll never satisfy his own desire. He'll always feel like there's something falling apart. He'll never feel like he's earning enough, doing enough. He'll either feel like he's, he's both too busy and, and, and not slowing down enough at the same time. And I want him to be able to see my life and see that even though I'm dealt with the same realities as he does, I have hope in Jesus. I have peace in Christ. Christ helps me parent my child. Christ helps me on the days where I know I don't earn enough to give him the life I want to give him. But I can give him other things, and that's okay. I'm glad that he's going to be on the softball team, and there's a part of it like, what if he's on the softball team and I don't end up getting to lead him to Jesus, and what's that possibility? And that's almost a burden too big to bear. That's what cost of compassion. And it's too much for too many of us. It's easy for say, I'd rather not get emotionally involved in the life of somebody who is suffering or struggling, whether materially or whether it's spiritual bankruptcy. Because the deeper I get involved, the more it's going to cost me. And I don't know, on the, I don't get to sign a contract on the front end to obligate me with some boundaries. I don't have a no trade clause. You know what, I get involved is a no trade clause. At the same time, if I'm going to be uneasy about something, thank God that by the time I hit 42, I'm starting to be uneasy about the same things God's uneasy about. I'm not laying awake at night wondering, how am I ever going to retire? What about Social Security? Or what about, you know, my wife's upset, I think, but I'm not sure I asked her. She won't tell me. What is, you know, like, I'm not laying awake at night about those things. The things that are finally starting to penetrate through this 42-year-old heart are what about the spiritual plights of the people closest to me? What am I doing for them? What am I doing about the 33% of the students in this school who can't afford to pay $2.10 for lunch? What am I doing for the administrators in this community who say, please pray for us because we're dealing with a lot of racial issues here? What do I do for all the people who live on my street, who work two and three jobs, who can afford a house, who can afford to pay rent, who can afford a boat and vacations and all kinds of other things, but who are spiritually bankrupt? And there's part of me that would like to shut that down and tackle something a little easier. But friends, that's not what I'm called to. 
And that's not what you're called to. And if compassion is working in your life, you will not be able to see suffering and look away. So my appeal to you this morning is, will you be willing to once again say, Jesus, I consecrate my sight to you. I am willing to look at suffering because I will be the person who, like you did, Jesus, get down on my knee and say, I will help you. Let's pray together this morning. I know there are people watching on Facebook and I hope there are people here in this auditorium today who would say, but pastor, I'm not even right with God myself. I know I'm broken. Friend, the only reason I can say I'm different than that is I am a sinner saved by grace. I came to Jesus completely aware of my bankruptcy, completely aware of my emotional brokenness, completely aware of my insufficiency to repair myself, even as an overachiever, even as a perfectionist. Behind all of that, I finally came to a place where I said, I can't self-repair. I am now a beggar in need of some type of compassion, and Jesus met me there. And he gave me grace. He gave me that which I couldn't give to myself. And didn't just say go your own way. He let me be an active participant. And becoming whole and complete with him. And all he asked me to do is as simple as ABC. He asks me and he asks you, will you admit that you come to him bankrupt and broken? Will you admit that you come to Jesus unable to repair yourself? That you've disobeyed him and as such have been alienated from him, yourself, from others. Will you be, will you believe in Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible. Jesus, the son of God. The God man who came from heaven to earth for one purpose. To die in exchange for payment for your sin forever. He picked up the tab for that debt all of us accrued against God by hanging on the cross and dying. But do you also believe that he's not hidden in a tomb somewhere today that you can dig up his bones, put him under a microscope and do a history channel special? Do you believe what the Bible says that he actually rose from the dead and defeated death and tells us if we'll follow him, we can do the same? We don't have to fear death anymore. It loses its sting. It loses its power because it's not over at death. At death, eternity begins for us in heaven. And will you choose him to be your Lord? Do you come to a place where you say, you know, I need to live his way, not my way. He is the Lord. I am a servant. His way is attractive and it is higher than my way, and I will follow him. Will you admit? Will you believe? Will you choose? If so, today is your day of salvation. If you want to make that prayer as our worship team comes, you can pray a simple prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I admit that I am broken. I admit that I am a sinner. I have disobeyed you. Jesus, I confess that I believe in you. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you raised from the dead. I believe you're drawing me to you today. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Thank you for paying my debt, settling my account with your father. I receive forgiveness today. I receive you, Jesus. I receive all of you into me because I know you're receiving all of me into you. And I make a conscious, intentional choice for you to be my Lord. I will no longer argue with you about who's in control of my decisions. You now are in the driver's seat. I am in the passenger seat. I get off the throne of my life. You sit there. 
I'll be your servant because I trust you that if I live your way, it is for my best. It's for my favor. It's for my blessing. It's for my completion and my joy. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're willing and able all over this room, will you stand with me? Our prayer team is coming. Here's the appeal today. As our prayer team comes, here's my appeal to you. Will you respond to the invitation of Jesus to embody more of his compassion? Will you be more sensitive to seeing the suffering and the lack in the lives of the people around you, whether it be obvious to the naked eye or whether it be hidden behind the appearance of health and success? Will you say once again, Jesus, I need to see better the suffering around me? And the second part, Jesus, I will act upon what you show me to act upon. Friends, a church given to the compassion of Christ will never be at a lack for sheep to shepherd. They will be drawn to Christ in droves. And yes, it has to do with the teaching. And yes, it has to do in some ways with structure and organization. But you know what people really want? People want to know that in Christ there is hope, that there is acceptance, that there is forgiveness, that there is freedom. And yes, I might get a chance to teach them about it, or James, or Brian, or Moses, or Fred, or somebody else will have a chance to share that with them from a pulpit. But you're probably going to be the most effective preacher that they have. And if that's going to be successful, it depends upon our willingness to daily surrender to the values of Jesus who lives in us. So I'm calling you this week to a deeper awareness of the compelling capacity of compassion. Our prayer team is here to pray with you about anything at all. But I also have a sense in my heart that some of you are at a place where you say, I'm not at a compassion deficit. I mean, I'm not a compassion bankruptcy. But boy, I need more of Christ's compassion activated in my life. I might not be there, but I'm not going to walk out of here discouraged and be like, boy, that message really beat me over the head today. I'm going to say, I heard about the compassion of Christ again, and boy, is that attractive to me. And boy, is that a life that I want to live. And so I'm not going to walk out of here feeling sorry for myself. I'm going to come to Jesus and say, I want that. What will it cost? What do I need to do next? You just admit and you ask. You admit that you need it and you ask him for it. And it's not going to come from out there. It's going to come from his spirit that's already in you. And if you're really feeling heavy on that today, will you let us pray with you? When I make this appeal in a moment, come on down here. Let us lay hands on you and pray with you that that fire of compassion will come alive in you to see needs differently, to overcome the hesitancy and the inadequacy and all of the excuses that come with saying, I can't get involved. It will cost me too much. Maybe somebody else will come along the way. Church, let's be recklessly bold, illogically driven to show compassion to those who God puts in our path. 